Luke 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 39 for us. Uh, And I want to read a quote uh, that hit me this week that I think will kind of set the page for where we're going um, and what we're going to experience through the prayer of Jesus. So Luke 22, 39, and the quote should be on the screen for you guys to follow along with me this morning. There's a quote from a guy named Francis Schaeffer, pastor, passed away in, I think, 1984. I wonder what would happen to most of our churches in Christian work if we woke up tomorrow morning and everything concerning the reality and work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. I don't mean just ignored, but actually cut out, disappeared. I wonder how much difference it would make. Now, just to set the pace of Francis Schaeffer, this is casual conversation between him and his wife that he just happened to record for our benefit. I don't know about you guys, I don't have this kind of casual conversation with my wife. It's like, what's for dinner, boo? That's our casual conversation. This is what they considered and pondered, right? I wonder how much difference it would make if we woke up tomorrow and all of scripture that dealt with the Holy Spirit of prayer was just completely removed out of it. Would we notice it? Would we talk about it? Would it change the way that we live? Because this morning we're gonna look at a prayer of Jesus and just examine it for all that it is. Because I think this is probably the most gut-wrenching prayer that is ever recorded in scripture. And what can we glean from it and what can we learn from it? So Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So as we get into the morning of prayer, let's stop and pray that the Spirit would illuminate truth in our heart today. And Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your example. And God, as, as we dissect and look at you and in, in your prayer this morning, God, would this not just be words on the page? Father, would we feel the emotions that you felt? Would we come to understand the realities of what you are praying God, the Hebrews isn't lying when they say that you are an empathetic high priest, that you know everything that we've felt and have gone through and have experienced even more. So Jesus, I just pray as as we examine this that you would speak to us. Uh, Father, we pray that that we're not like the Francis Schaeffer quote, that, that the spirit means something to us and that prayer means something to us. So God, would you speak, would you do only what you can do? That's your name that we pray. Amen. 
Now this is such an important part of scripture for us to see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recorded this. And this is probably one of the most brief uh, recordings of what happened in that garden. Um, Most of you probably know if you have a church background that, that he came to his disciples three times and caught them sleeping every single time. But what we see here just kind of opens up a snapshot of Jesus's reality because we see him all through the gospels, uh, casting out demons, standing up to the Pharisees and Sadducees, telling death it cannot be death anymore. I mean, just the most fearless, brave, audacious Jesus that we, in a lot of ways, we just can't relate to, right? But in here we see fear, we see worry, we see angst. We can relate here. Ricky brought up, I don't know if you guys know this, every Thursday we have a preaching team, me, Ricky, and Dylan, that that help kind of form some of these scriptures and study this stuff together. And Ricky brought up Thursday a point that I hadn't considered, that all of scripture, all that we preach, the main thing that we're trying to preach is that you are not Jesus in any of these stories. Right, I mean, we just have this natural ego, like, oh man, I'm like Jesus the time you fed the 5,000. No, you're the fool just eating fish as fast as you can. That's who you are. Right, like just embrace that. And so all through scripture, you're not Moses. You're not Noah. You're not Abraham. Those are all the future foreshadowings of Jesus. But in here, in this moment, in this story, we're kind of like Jesus. Because we see this, this side of him that we don't, we don't see often. We see that as he leaves the Passover feast that we talked about last week, um, he ends with, it is enough. You guys are driving me crazy. You don't get it. Do any of us have these moments where there's something deep weighing on us and our friends just seem to not get it? That there's no one in the world, it seems like, that can relate to what we're going through. Anyone else felt that way? Because this is exactly what Jesus is walking into. Or his closest, Peter, James, and John, his boys in the moment of greatest distress let him down. Anyone else relate to that? So our friends don't understand what's going on. The ones that should just totally leave us high and dry, they fall asleep while we're up all night worried and consumed with what's going to happen. And that Jesus is desperately, desperately praying for a different outcome. And I know, church, I, I know a lot of our stories and you know mine. We've all been in these moments. When I was thinking through this and praying through this, I think the most obvious one came, um, I've shared some of this story before, but when Auburn, my almost eight-year-old, almost eight, I almost have an eight-year-old, that's crazy. When I, my almost eight-year-old was born, she had the cord wrapped around her neck, things were just going crazy. And I was thinking, who can I text, who can I call, uh, who can rally around me? Well, none of my friends had kids. They were all wanting to travel and do that thing, you know, like, I'm just gonna wait a little bit. We were all poor, no one was traveling, like we're going to the Atlanta, like woo, traveling, right? But that's the season of life they were in. So I, I had no one that I could call and say, you know what this feels like, right? Because none of my friends had kids. But the ones that I did, the ones that I, like, I had two guys that I said, hey, text them, will you pray? Because I don't know what's happening. My daughter's in the NICU that can't get my wife to wake up. I don't know if bo- I'm gonna lose both of them. Can you please pray for me? and neither responded or called or came to the hospital. So I I didn't have anyone, all my friends couldn't support me because they didn't understand what I was going through. And the ones that I thought I could didn't respond or didn't call or didn't text or didn't come. And I was desperately praying for a different outcome. 
Because I was standing there, the nurses kept saying, Dad, you need to come here. And as soon as I'd get to the NICU, Dad, you need to come back here. As soon as I'd get to Bree's room, Dad, you need to come here. The whole way back and forth, I'm praying, God, don't let me lose both my girls. So this emotion that Jesus is praying on the, on the Garden of Gethsemane is real, and we can all relate here. So for all the scripture that is good and God-breathed, but just seems unrelatable, this one, this prayer is not. So when we get in that moment, how quick do we just try to fix everything? I think, I think we say, oh man, like, I, I'm, I just don't have faith. I, I don't trust a God that I just don't understand. Oh no, you have faith and you have trust. We just put it in ourselves. But by God in his good grace is gonna keep giving you stuff till you cannot handle. We're gonna bow down or we're gonna bow down. And by his grace, he's gonna lead us to those waters so he can grow us and, and marinate himself in us. So this morning, as we look at this prayer, this isn't some fictitious, make-believe story. This isn't some just narrative, that is some phenomenal. This is real life. This happened. This emotions, this feelings, this fear, this agony took place. If this hasn't happened to you, praise God, but I think most of us, we've had these moments and we can learn from it. So as we look into this prayer, let me start by prefacing this way. Um, Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews, and I think it'll be on the screen. Um, Hebrews 5 records it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. He was praying with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him. So kind of, kind of big picture before we get into the weeds of this. Here's some things that we need to understand about this prayer of Jesus. It literally almost killed him. I mean, it literally, uh, we're not talking figuratively. This is, it literally almost killed him. Go back to Luke 22, verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. The other narratives would explain the same thing, that he was almost to the point of sorrow, sorrow unto death. That this prayer, this angst it was feeling, it almost killed him. So this was real stuff. This was serious stuff. Jesus can relate to us in these moments where we feel like we're praying so hard that death is on its way. The second thing that we need to see before we jump into the weeds that it was not a protection from Satan prayer, but it was pleading with God to change his mind. And I think we need to see the differences here. We need to understand the prayers that are being prayed. Not saying that we cannot pray for protection. Obviously, it's in the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from evil. But when we pray, we need to be specific and we need to understand what it is that we're actually praying for. And in this moment, he was asking God to change his mind. Because he knew, Luke 9, he knew, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I know what's coming. I know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I know what's going to happen in Passover. I'm going that way. He knew it. So in this moment, he's praying that God would change his mind. And the last thing that we need to see 
And it's gonna kind of be the theme that gets developed through all of this. And I hope that when I say this, this will kind of be a, a, a good inhale of fresh oxygen for us because Jesus still died. So that means God said no. Now of all the counseling and all the time I spend with us, here's maybe the one or two biggest theological uh, hiccups that we find ourselves in, that how could a loving God tell me no? How, how could a loving God actually tell me no? And you don't have to raise your hand if you ever questioned that, felt that, or if you're going through that right now. But if we were to, I would be surprised if every hand in the room didn't go up. The how could God, this was a good, right prayer. I prayed good things that were God honoring. How could God tell me no? But he did. And our greatest deliverance from sin and history came from an unanswered prayer. Let's, let's stop there for a second. We're gonna, the rest of the time, we're teasing out that idea that our greatest deliverance, our saving from sin through Jesus Christ came, began, started at an unanswered prayer. So have you had a prayer that went unanswered? So has Jesus. Has you had a prayer that ended poorly that you would have never guessed, you would have never wanted, you have never chosen that direction for you or your family? So did Jesus. but did it put a cascade of water rushing through the rest of eternity? Yes, that our greatest deliverance came from an unanswered prayer. So, so what can we glean then from his somewhat simple, short prayer in here? What can, we, what can we take away? What can we understand? The first that we see is that he calls him Father. If you go back to Luke 22, the first thing that he calls him his father. Now this starts to kind of give us a snapshot of the fully God yet fully man that we have somewhat understood but not quite understood. He prayed to him a father, a perfect father that loves like none other. And here's what's happening. There, there's two things taking place. There's the fatherness of God that hears, that receives, that welcomes these prayers. And there's the dependency of Jesus to go running to his father. That what we see here is Jesus' relationship with his father. The next thing we see, and I wish I could camp out here for the rest of the time, that we see God's character fully on display here. That God is a God that listens to our prayers. Now, theologically, we need to camp out here for a second. So I think it's going to be on the screen. Psalm 65, verse 1. Boom. I'm trying to get better at this whole technology thing. I'm really old and that doesn't help me. Psalm 65, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Prayer, praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Psalm 66, 19 through 20 says a very similar thing. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be to God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So we see the character of God on display here and it's something that we all need to notice because something that I have said, something I've heard you guys say, I'm sure we've all felt at some point, is that God is just not listening to my prayers. It seems as though God just does not care. 
But what we see from Psalms is God's character is a listener. So if he ceases to listen to our prayers, he ceases to be God. We're tracking with this. So it is impossible for God not to listen to our prayers because then he would lose his godness. Psalm 62, Psalm 66 is clear. God is a God who listens. If he ceases to listen, he ceases to be God. So when we pray, the confidence that Jesus had in his prayer was that I know my Father hears me. And that should just bring so much comfort to us. That it's not that he's choosing to ignore us or, or that he didn't answer our prayer because this or that, because he didn't hear, he didn't want to hear. We see clearly here that God is a God that hears. I, I would encourage you, Jonathan Edwards, um, in January of 1735, wrote a sermon. You can't listen to it because there was no recording devices. I'm called the Most High, a prayer hearing God. I would encourage you to go and read that. He dives all into this. But we need to understand God's character, that he is a God that hears. So when we pray, take confidence in that God hears us because if he doesn't, if he refuses, he has lost his godness. The other thing that we see as far as God's character and who he is as Jesus prays to him is that God is a God of protection. That he offers protection, that he's looking out for, that he cares for his son, he cares for his daughters, he cares for us. And if that wasn't true, if God could not actually protect, then why was Jesus wasting his time? Why would Jesus go up there and pray if God actually can't protect, if God can't provide, if God can't intervene? Why would Jesus go waste his time? Because God is a protector. It's in his nature to protect, to provide, to care for. If he didn't, Jesus would have been better off getting his boys and getting out of Jerusalem as fast as possible. But he didn't because God is a protector. But the last thing we see in Jesus' prayer, the theme that we run out to as far as God is Father, is the submission piece. There are some times where the correct answer is yes, sir. Now, I know we don't want to hear that. But there's times when we've laid everything we have before the Father that the correct answer, the correct mindset for us is to say, yes, sir. But, but what if we don't understand, yes, sir? But, but what if we disagree with the God of the universe? Yes, sir. So there's a submission piece here that we have to understand. It's something that we're wrestling with with our kids. They have the inability to zoom out and see the bigger picture. I mean, just a little simple analogy. My daughter would rather have $1 bill than 50 quarters. I mean, I know what you're thinking. I'll go ahead and say it, that's dumb, right? <laughs> you're not gonna call my kid dumb and I really appreciate that. That's dumb. Why? Because there's no ability to zoom out and see the bigger picture, to understand that a lot and a little look totally different in the kingdom of God. So we have to, we have to understand. There's times where we don't understand and we won't understand. And the answer is, yes, sir, I'm on it. There's two pictures here that we see in scripture that we have to understand in this idea that we're praying to our father because the inability or the, the temptation to lose God as father starts to make this whole prayer crumble. John eight twenty nine puts it this way, and this is Jesus talking. 
And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He who is with me has sent me. He has not left me alone. A good father does not leave us alone. Even though those moments we feel like that's the reality. We have to cling truth to scripture. That is not the reality. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This analogy just rings true for us. That even as screwed up dads as we can be, if we occasionally get it right and give, give good gifts to our children, how much more will the heavenly father give us the spirit, which is what we're dependent upon? We cannot lose this fatherness, this prayer to the Father. We, we can't walk away with, from that. We can't skip over that. That's why Jesus started with this. And, and I believe this, is, this prayer was a dagger to the heart of God. I mean, he's not sitting up there going, oh, sorry, Jesus, bring me some grapes, angels. Right? Like, he wasn't sitting up there rejoicing over that. He was lamenting that the sin of Adam cursed the world and he had to do this to his son. That father does not desire or will for evil like this to play out. That he wasn't neutral in heaven hearing these prayers. As a father, he was broken over this. But as a father, he saw the bigger picture and knew that this is the only way for this to take place. So we cannot skip over the fact that Jesus starts with Father. We can't neglect the fatherness of our God. Father, if you are willing. Father, if you are willing. Now the word is here is important because he does not say if you are able, does he? Simple word here, but the implications of this are endless. Father, if you are able, no, he's God. Father, if you are willing. He's not praying to this weak father. He's praying to an omnipotent father that can do whatever he wills. Is that how our prayers start? Father, are you willing or Father, are you able Luke 18, 27 puts it as black and white as possible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Church, we have to see that Jesus knew who he was praying to, a father who is able, a father who is willing a father that can, a father that all things are possible in him and through him. Now, let me just take a step back for a second. How many of our prayers start in that capacity? How many times do we pray? Do we hit our knees? Do we bow our heads? However you pray, how many times do we walk into with a true confidence that he can? Whatever we're about to pray, he can. It's not that he's able, the prayer is if he's willing. Do we have that confidence when we pray to the God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords? Church, do we? If we flip back, you don't have to, I think it'll be on the screen. After Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's prayer, how to pray, he includes this massive detail, Luke 11, verse 8. 
I tell you, though, he will not get up. This is the analogy. This is the parable of the guy runs over to his friend's house in the middle of the night, is knocking on the door like crazy. Hey, I had some friends show up. You got to give me some bread. This is really rude. They just showed up. If I don't have anything to offer them, uh, I'm, I'm not going to look good in front of my friends. You've got to help me out. And here's the conclusion of this. Verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up to give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, as the NASB says, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because of his persistence. Why was his friend persistent? Because he knew he had bread. Why would we be persistent in our prayer? Because our God can do it. The lack of persistence in our prayer is a direct correlation to our lack of faith in who God is and his ability to do what we're asking. And we can pretty this up however we want to, church. Oh, I didn't want to bother him. Oh, I can do, no, it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust because our persistence means we do not have the faith that he can come through for us. If you are willing, not if you are able, and these things are so far apart, but we lack the persistence because the truth is we don't think he can come through. I mean, let's just be honest. Can we just for a few minutes be honest with one another? Persistence means that we know they have what we need. Persistence means that we know that we can wear them down. Now, can we wear down God? No. But in this analogy, that's the conclusion that comes to. If we don't persist in our prayers, the truth is daunting for us that we don't think he can or we don't think he will. And we need to address those sin issues in our heart. There are a few saints that I know that have been praying the same prayer for decades. For decades. 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Consistent same prayers over and over and over again. And in my mind, that just kind of drives me crazy. How, how have you not lost heart? How have you not quit on that? How have you not given up, thrown in the towel? Because these saints understand the persistence that happens. Persistence. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. So once we understand the fatherness of God, and once we understand that it's not an able, but it's willing, that God can do whatever he wills, whatever he pleases, he has that in himself. Father, if you are able, then we get to the request. Because Jesus knew those two things as facts, then we get to the request to remove this cup from me. This is probably one of the most descriptive quotes I read this week describing what he was going through. This cup was steaming with a brew, brew that was so awful, so fearful, so dreadful, so unbearable, so appalling, so horrendous that Jesus' soul was repulsed and convulsed. So he's not simply praying for a lack of death here. He's not praying for Jesus to spare his own life. He knew that was coming, but the weight of what's coming is that Jesus is about, or God is about to pour out all the wrath of humankind on him. And this is so unbearable to Jesus. That he's pleading, would you remove this? 
All of our sins, past, present, future, will pour down on Christ in that moment. He knows the weight of that sin that's about to swallow him whole. He's not afraid of death, church. But the prayer is remove this cup of wrath that's about to be poured out on me. Remove this lack of fellowship because after this sin is poured out, I know that I'm not going to be in right standing with God. Remove that from me. And I, and I think this is where our prayers stop because it requires a level of honesty and vulnerability that, that none of us have maybe experienced with the Most High King. That it requires this honesty, this transparency, this vulnerability with the God of gods, the King of kings, to lay this before him. Church, we are fixers and we can fix it and we can take care of it and we might understand God as Father, we might understand that he is able, but have we truly laid down this level of sin, fear, worry, anxiety, doubt before him? And said, if you're willing, would you do this? Now I wanna say this carefully because I believe in both sides of this, right? But this is not praying for Aunt Sally's knee replacement kind of prayer. This is not my family. I love my family. I love my kids. My kids have often through the last six weeks come up and prayed over my foot. And that just warms my heart. I love to see that. But this is not the prayer we're praying here. This is the prayer that leads to death. This is the prayer that if, God, if you don't intervene, if you don't fix this, if you don't come through, I don't know how I'm going to survive. These kind of prayers. If my foot never heals, I will survive. I don't want that. I don't want that. Just clarify. I would love my foot to heal. These are the prayers, the, the vulnerability, the transparency, the brokenness that we lay before God the Father. These are these kind of prayers. I mean, just maybe this is a little bit of conjecture, but, but this makes me wonder the kind of prayers that Abraham, as he was leading his son, knowing that what God had asked of him was about to be a sacrifice of his son, the prayer that Abraham was praying, God, would you please not do this? Would you please take this away? Would you please provide something else? It's those kind of prayers, right? And so it makes me wonder about the prayers of Peter before he was crucified upside down, knowing his death is inevitable. inevitable. It's right there. It's those kind of prayers. It's the prayer of James the half-brother of Jesus before he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. It's those prayers. My life is on the line. It's the prayers of the parents next to the deathbed of their children. It's those kind of prayers. It's the prayers I know some of you college students are praying for your family that divorce would not happen. It's those prayers where there's nothing else you can do other than lay it before the foot of the Most High God, our Father. Those are the prayers we're talking about, church. It's not simple things that can be resolved by common grace. It's complex things that can only be resolved by the heart of a good father who is willing and able. These are the prayers that we're talking about. This is the prayer that Jesus is praying, that lump in your throat style prayer. So we have to be clear here what kind of prayer is taking place. And I, I know the, the age gap we have in this room, and I love it, and I think intergenerational is the way to go, and I would not have it any other way. But I know that there's some in this room right now that are thinking or kind of arguing with me, man, you sound a little melodramatic, sound a little ridiculous, why are you so passionate? 
man, I, I love and appreciate your ignorance of this subject, but your time is coming. If you have not prayed these prayers, if you've not felt this pain, your time is coming. Would you please remember me as I plead with you based on the Father or the prayer of Jesus to his Father that your time is coming. One of the things that we do for our kids now that we homeschool because we're a cult like that, uh, we're trying to teach them a bunch of memorization as they're young, even though they have no idea what this means, that like my four-year-old can almost recite every single president. Blows my mind. I don't even know every president, right? That means nothing to him. He has no evidence or no worldview for what a president really does. But the education style that we're doing is that if we can teach him now why he can soak it all in, when it matters, he can recite it. So if you can put this in your brain now, you can follow this deep within. You can remember this prayer. So when this prayer matters, you have this here. We have a father that is willing to remove this cup. But I know there's the other of us that know this prayer, that are wrestling through this prayer right now that have been wounded by this prayer, that, that the lack of response to our prayers has us going back to square one and starting to doubt whether God is truly a good father. And we have to, church, we have to remember our greatest deliverance came from an unanswered prayer. I have to trust that God is a father who is willing that can remove this cup. And he may or he may not, but it's because he has a massive worldview that none of us can comprehend. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, oh church, we never get to nevertheless. Our prayers end way before nevertheless. Regardless, even though your will be done. 1 John 2, 17 puts it this way. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So Jesus here is caught in between two good and right desires, to do the will of his Father and to live. We're not talking about a sin in a non-sin issue here. This is not sin and righteousness. This is good and good. Do the will of the Father or live here. But nevertheless, your will be done. And look, church, this is kind of that, that cute, churchy, oh, whatever your will be done. We just want to bring glory to your name. The power of what he just meant was, and I'm going to die. I mean, you got to understand, we are minutes away from these words of Jesus before his arrest and betrayal. I mean, this was it for him. Nevertheless, your will be done. And can we honestly get there in our prayers? Can we understand that God is a father who is willing to do something, but even if he doesn't, that we have to understand now look, I, I spend um, a lot of time writing sermons, trying to, to inspire based on the scriptures that we see. And one of the things, one of the best ways to paint these pictures is through illustrations. 
And there was not a single illustration that I could come up with this point. Because this idea of nevertheless, your will done, not mine, just doesn't happen naturally in our world. I mean, the sad reality of it is, I was like, well, surely I can think of an example in my own marriage. Nope. Because the nevertheless, my happiness for my wife often comes with sin in my mind and passive-aggressive jabs to her in those moments. So even when we say, no, no, you, you do, you, you take care of you, I'm going to surrender so that you can, it's often done in pride and sin, and it's not done with a cheerful heart. That we have no framework for this nevertheless your will be done idea. There was a single illustration I could come up with of how this really manifests itself and lashes out in our lives. It's 2019 in America. We are entitled. We don't have to wrestle with nevertheless. Your will be done, not mine. Nevertheless, even so, even if you don't come through in this, it's your will is more important than mine. And we see, we read this earlier, but we see Hebrews 5, how it ends in talking about Jesus' prayer, that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That what is happening, Paul puts this perfectly as he's getting beaten and abused in all these prisons. Is what is happening to me, church, is helping to serve, to advance the gospel. There's a purpose, there's a lesson here. So when we get to these points of nevertheless, here's the only thing I can offer to you. Who created the sun and the stars? I mean, go back to Job and read as Job is back-talking and back-talking and God finally intervenes and says, look, who created the sun and the moon and the stars? Who created Adam and Eve? Who created all that we see? The earth, the space, the oceans, who created it all and called it good? For me, I have to zoom out in these nevertheless moments. Your will be done, not mine, because I am steadfast in my high D personality that I know what's best and we're gonna get there. But when I start to zoom out and say, no, 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 who created all of this? That's the only piece that I can get through here. So as we start to wrap up, as we put some closing thoughts here, just let me, let me kind of process this with us. Does God say no to our prayers? Absolutely he does. Does God say no to our prayers? Absolutely. But we have to kind of zoom out of this even for a second. Even through his no, doesn't that mean that there's a God that's concerning himself with the well-being of mankind? I mean, the opposite, we say, oh, that makes an evil God. But the opposite of that would be no God at all. So that means all of this was for no purpose that the suffering that we go through, that the prayers we pray that don't get answered, if there's not a God that's telling us no, that that means ultimately there's no purpose, there's no hope, there's no reason. So, so what is happening here? So what we really want, what we really think would be better sometimes is absolutely worse for us because then there means there's no plan to any of this. And if that's true, then what are we even doing here? then why don't we just let anarchy reign and do whatever we want, but if there's more purpose happening, there's a plan to all of this, then I can sleep well at night, right? 
So does God say no to our prayers? Absolutely. Does he do it because he's a horrible God and father? Absolutely not. Does he do it because he cannot change things? Absolutely not. Does he do it because our prayers are selfish? Not always. Does he do it for God's glory and purpose so that we can see his glory on display 10,000% yes? But church, we have to understand we might not ever see that moment that we have generation after generation after generation, what I go through here, my great-grandparents might celebrate. Great-grandchildren, because that's not Benjamin Button, right? What's happened to me in this moment, I might not ever see the fruit of. It might be generation after generation. But a God that is outside of time does not see that as a limitation for him. But he sees whatever he can to bring himself most glory, which is most good for us, he will do that our greatest deliverance came from an unanswered prayer. If I could just say that, I mean, part of my temptation in writing this sermon, well, I was just gonna stand up and say that for 45 minutes because I just don't think we believe it or understand it or comprehend it, that our greatest deliverance came from an unanswered prayer. We should not loathe, lament, hate unanswered prayers, that our greatest deliverance came from that One of my favorite stories, we'll we'll end our time here. One of my favorite stories is Daniel 3, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you guys, church kids, VBS, you understood this. You grew up with this story, right? Would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. So he says, if you don't, I will throw you in this furnace. And they stand up toe-to-toe with the king and say what? My God can save me. My God will save me. Even though he doesn't, even if he doesn't, that's still good, God. And that story thousands of years later is still ushering in glory for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because we get to talk about it, recite it, and it stirs up affections for our Father. So does that mean that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were more faithful than Jesus Christ? Does that mean because their prayers were answered, they were not burned up in that fire, that they themselves were more faithful, less sinful, more perfect than Jesus Christ who got crushed on the cross? Of course not, church. Of course not. My challenge to you this afternoon would go read Hebrews 11. Because Hebrews 11 goes through and talks about the faithful men and women that, that shut the mouth of lion, that were not devoured by their enemies, but turns right around and said, but there were those that were killed by the mouth of lions. There were those that were destroyed by their enemies. It's not a faithfulness thing, guys. It's God, is for God's glory. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. So as we stop this morning to to take communion, as we end every gathering the same, as we examine our hearts, some of us need to release this frustration, this anger that we've had with God for not answering our prayers. Because we see that the entire universe, the landscape of everything was changed through an unanswered prayer. So we cannot have this duplicitous thought in our mind, church. We cannot say, I'm angry at God for not answering my prayer and then partake communion, which is because of an unanswered prayer. We can't have both. 
So as we remember all that Christ did for us on that cross, let us take heart, let us be encouraged that the only reason we can take communion, the only reason that we've been made new, the only reason that we have saved and redeemed became through an unanswered prayer. And let us remember Jesus that willingly did that for us. So as believers, this is our time to examine our hearts as we take communion. As unbelievers, this is the time for you to sit and reflect and ex examine your own heart. But we would ask not to take communion quite yet. Because this is a time for us as the redeemed. So let's pray and, and enter into a time of, of heart examination. Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Would you um, lead us as we stop to consider, as we stop to pray. God, you know that there are real wounds in this room this morning. That the pain of unanswered prayers, the pain that, that we thought you should have showed up in a different way is true. That some of us in this room have prayed that to the point where we didn't think we could get up the next day. And Father, it's hard for us to be jealous of those around us that you answered their prayer, but not ours. And we start to doubt and wonder at second guess. What did I did wrong? What, why was I not considered worthy? Are you just mean and just picking on me, God? What's happening here? Father, thank you for including the prayer of Jesus that night in the garden, minutes before he's betrayed and arrested and beaten and murdered. All through an unanswered prayer. So as churches, we examine our hearts. What is the Lord speaking to you this morning? If you have been a recipient of an unanswered prayer, you're in great company, because Jesus was too. And you've, if you haven't quite yet made it there, man, would you just recycle this deep into your soul for when that moment comes, you won't second guess the goodness of our Father, but you would remember that our greatest deliverance of mankind came through an unanswered prayer. And Father, would we worship you this morning for not answering that prayer? Because the only reason we can talk to you, the only reason we can worship you, the only reason we can partake in your Lord's Supper, the only reason we can study scripture and illuminate our hearts is because you didn't answer that prayer. Would we stop confusing an unanswered prayer for meanness or apathy, but would we trust that you are a good father that knows and loves and cares so deeply for his children? And so church, when, whenever you're ready, I will let you say the amen of this prayer. Whenever your heart's prepared, communion will be open. We have two on the side, we have two in the back. We'll have some elders spread around if you need to pray but take time to examine your hearts and when amen is said, communion will be open.